Christ has died. Do that one with a little more oomph. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. I have a prayer for you individually as people, right? You are many people. You are my people. I am your pastor. I pray for you as a whole all the time. But right now, my prayer for you as a whole is a prayer for you individually. But over the next several weeks of this Easter season, as we run with various Christians from the tomb of Jesus, knowing it is empty, toward our own tombs that we know are still coming unless he returns. My prayer for you is as you see this early Christian church and their zest and their flavor and their encouragement and their hope, as you see this in the book of Acts, it, it inspires you. And the inspiration I want in you is only this, that when the noise from outside comes, you just aren't put to flight by fear. That's it. My prayer for you is that through this series, you're going to begin to see yourself in the Bible. You're going to see yourself in the Bible in Christ. And that having that reality of being in Christ, like these other great saints of old, is going to give you a confidence to stand in the present evil age, redeeming the time of today, because you're going to know that's God's will for your life, and it's good and even though it's filled with persecutions and trials and thorns and thistles and all the rest of it, there is something so much better in loving your neighbor as yourself and in trying to store up a bunch of whatever so that you can have some tomorrow. Finding each other in the pew, you, brothers and sisters here, houses and homes, children and fathers and mothers of each other. I want us as a people to know when we come to this place, to St. Paul Lutheran Church, we're bound together by something the rest of the world doesn't have, unless, of course, they go to a Bible-preaching, sacrament-drinking Lutheran church. And I, Do you know? There aren't as many as there used to be. Uh, so we have something here, something very special, something that has the capacity to blossom and grow and be beautiful in your heart. That's my prayer for you. As we begin to run toward the tomb... Last week, with Peter to the tomb to see that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Now, from the tomb, where does Peter go? Uh, the life of Peter and his, his many deaths, which then begin to be told as part of the New Testament gospel, that Peter, this chief apostle, this commissioned apostle, this head of the apostles, uh, that he, in his life in Christ where we see him, doesn't get everything he wants rather does just as Christ does. Uh, he is taken where he does not want to go, but will go, according to the Father's will, for the sake of the proclamation of the Father's goodness toward mankind in the death of, of Jesus. So we touched on this last week, where at the end of John's Gospel, uh, we see Jesus telling Peter he's going to be crucified before he dies. And John and Peter are kind of in this little conversation, well, what about John and all this stuff? But we saw that, that Jesus predicts this to Peter. And then John, the author of the gospel, has already hinted at this twice, and we saw this again last week, right? Uh, that when he, John, and Peter are running to the tomb, which is empty, John stops outside the tomb and looks in. He sees everything, but he doesn't go in the tomb. And Peter runs and he dives into the tomb. Right, and then it comes out again. So there's like this death and resurrection moment for Peter. 
And then it happens again when, after the resurrection appearances, some of them, they, uh, John, Peter, others who are fishing by the Sea of Galilee, uh, they see Jesus at the beach, and he's having a barbecue of some fish, and they turn the boat to go over and join him. He is the Lord after all, but Peter doesn't wait. He just dives into the abyss. Uh, he dives into the sea, which, remember, for the Hebrew mind, mythologically, uh, this is the abode of the dead in many ways. It's, a, it's an image of the grave. Uh, an image of the place where the demons are bound as well. And he just dives in. You know, whatever. I'm going to go to Jesus now. So we see this flavor of Peter running toward his own death with heedless trust in Christ coming out of John's gospel. And then we pick up in the book of Acts. And we're going to find, as we look through the book of Acts over the next couple of weeks, but these next two weeks, first half, second half, they're built around Peter and Paul. Next week we're going to look at Paul. And the building around Peter that happens, well, guess what? He, he figuratively dies and rises three times. Uh, the death and resurrection he undergoes is imprisonment rather than an actual crucifixion. But he's imprisoned and miraculously raised or gotten out of prison, un unexpectedly comes out of prison three different times. And every time he does, he goes out and he begins to share the spirit of God with people. He begins to heal and do all manner of things that Jesus did. Things that Jesus did uh, until after his third resurrection, which will be our final text this morning when we really look at what we just heard read, right? Uh, that third resurrection, he effectively ascends out of the book of Acts. So he dies and rises three times, and then he just disappears. He comes back for a brief moment at the council in the book of uh, the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15, only to be second, third, to Paul and James. So after this death and resurrection, the final time, again, Peter just kind of vanishes. He shows up briefly, and he's gone. The, what is that supposed to mean? I think what it means is Luke is saying, look, when you become a Christian, you become Christ-like. It's going to happen. Christ is going to make you like him. And the way this will happen is that you're going to die and rise throughout the rest of your life. That is, the sufferings of this present time will to you not be worth comparing with the joy which you know is going to be revealed at the resurrection of the righteous, which you are, because you are anointed and baptized in Christ. And so this ability to run toward your own tomb is what is embodied in Peter's three imprisonments and freedoms, and then his vanishing into, we know from tradition, he doesn't disappear, he goes to the Gentiles. He leaves Judea, right? But meanwhile, uh, in, in Acts, Paul's going to go to the Gentiles first. And so we'll track with Paul next week. But today, right now, what we're going to do is see the many, the many persecutions that Peter is given into and how the Lord Jesus delivers him from them all in the book of Acts as a picture of his promise to always deliver his holy Christian church. That's you. From the gr grand variety of persecutions and trials you do face in this life, until the day when maybe you're just like St. Paul and you're sitting in prison and you know that you can get out of prison if you ask Jesus to get you out of prison. But you're like, you know what, Jesus, it's time for martyrdom. Okay. Right? But not everyone gets there. You don't have to get there. Where you're going to go is that you trust that God's going to get you out of whatever you're in. If that means he lets you die today and then you rise in glory, well, great. If that means he, he wakes you up and you get to go on some more and love your neighbor as yourself some more and study the scriptures some more and tell the children about Jesus some more, well, then that's what what he'll do. Huh? So I want that confidence in you out of what you see, this life that Peter lives. We're just going to dig into Peter's story now. If you would find in your pew Bible, page 909, that's where the book of Acts starts. 
What I'm going to do is I'm going to just tell the story. I'm not going to point to the text all the time. Uh, I will tell you when I'm in a certain chapter. Uh, and then we're going to dive in, though, to just about four different little texts that are going to give you, I hope, a flavor. And so this is like a secondary goal here. It's kind of part of the primary goal. I want you to pick up, out of the book of Acts, the flavor of the early church. I don't want you to think about all the big stories you know. What I want to look at is the corners you don't know where the people are living their normal, everyday lives in Christ, changed because of his resurrection right, from what it was before. And how, uh, what, um, how, how terrifying it probably was, I think. I really do think that they, they were living in uh, tremendous fear a lot of the time, except for that because of what they believed, the fear was now pointed at Christ instead of at, say, the people who were arresting them and throwing them into prison for converting from Judaism to Christianity. Right? Uh, their fear is not of those who would hurt them. Their fear is of Christ, and so they're then fearless. But if we were to, again, look at where they're living, it's a terrifying environment. The early church is in a terrifying environment, and you see them not terrified. And again, that's what I, that's what I know the gospel gives to you. I know it. It does. And part of the way it does that is you see these saints of old who are our brothers and sisters in Christ believing what it means to be in Christ. And those stories, they enliven us. They wake us. They build us. All right, so here we go. Hopefully you found page 909 by now. Um, Peter was there. For, all the way to chapter 15 in the book of Acts, Peter was there. Even before this, he's there when Thomas is converted a week after the resurrection. He's there when the two disciples from the Emmaus Road on resurrection evening return and say they've seen Jesus. Everyone's like, yeah, Peter did too, right? Uh, Peter's there. Uh, he's there at least to be part of when Jesus appears to over 500 people. He's part of that witness crowd, or at least he knows who those 500 people who saw Jesus at one time were. That's out of 1 Corinthians, by the way. He's there at the ascension of Jesus when Jesus takes him to the mountaintop and he leaves. He, just, he goes behind this cloud and at the same time inaugurates the New Testament kingdom of baptism, which is a pretty specific and major thing. It's often called the Great Commission. But really, it, it, if it is a Great Commission, it is the commission of baptism itself, right? Uh, it is the inauguration of the New Testament baptism in Jesus' name. He's there for that. Um, and then what happens next, right? That's kind of where I want us to, to Peace at. So in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, it'll be right there on page 909 near the bottom. You have a story that you may be familiar with this, but it, it kind of flies by night quite a bit here. It says, after Jesus ascends, they returned to Jerusalem, that's verse 12, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. That's the whole Christian church on earth. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what, 25 people? I mean, think about that. Our church is dying. How do you know? We only got 25 people coming. Oh, huh. Who's your God? 
right? Who's your God? 25 people, maybe more, maybe less, in a room. Jesus just left. They're doing what he said. He said, wait till I send the Spirit. They're going to wait till he sends the Spirit. What do they do in the meantime? They pray. When they pray, what do they do? Do they just kind of wander around making stuff up? No, I'm pretty confident they read the Psalms. Why do I think this? Because Peter decides, hey, I just read something in the Psalms, guys. I just read how we're supposed to replace anyone who falls out of the office of an apostle. So we need to replace Judas now. And they have this, what happens right next in the next text, the rest of Acts 1. They, they replace Judas, uh, not because they need Judas, but because the office was established. And Christ gave a power to man, and they believe, according to the psalm Peter's looking at, and I think he's right, that that man needs to be, a man needs to be put back in that office. Uh, this is how we kind of talk about the preaching office, by the way, uh, as Lutherans. But in any case, the story is that uh, they, they ask, the apostles ask all the other Christians that are there, uh, who has been here from the start, right, and still believes, right? Um, and uh, they put forward two men, uh, one named Matthias, and I believe one's named Justice, but he's got like three names. And, and they have to decide between these two men, and the way they do it is, is they cast lots, which does kind of mean roll dice. Ancient dice aren't quite like six-sided dice, but um, you know they, they cast lots. This is an ancient Hebrew tradition as well. Uh, if you like your Old Testament lore, the Uman and the I always say it wrong. The Uman and the Thurin. Nope, that's wrong. It's the Urim and the Thummim. There it is. Uh, it's a it's an ancient uh, lot casting mechanism built into the high priestly garments of the Sinai Covenant, by which David can say, "Hey God, should I go fight them?" And God says, "Yes or no." Uh, so that casting lots idea, it's also how they get the land distributed when they go into the promised land, is they cast lots. And so you get your plot of land, and it's your lot, right? Oh, that lot's for sale. That, that's where that language actually comes from, right? Is the casting of lots to get into Canaan and take certain sections of the promised land for various tribes and families. So well, here they are uh, deciding that we're not going to make the decision who the next apostle is, but we know there are these two godly men. Jesus, do you want one of them? How do they cast lots? Which dice do they use? No one knows, but they do put Matthias into the office. And from here, you have a little bit of a, a tangent, which I think I'll take up in our extra time at the late service, as to, was this right? Should they have done this? Because there's a, there's a whole section of Christianity that says that the apostles are basically stupid almost all the way up to, like, chapter 4. Like they just keep making the wrong decisions. Even beyond that, you'll hear people say the apostles should have left Jerusalem right away. And since they didn't, they were faithless. So now we need to do mission more. And that's kind of where that goes. Um, I don't think that story is true. I'm going to spend more time on it at the late service. But, but for your sake, let's just say Peter is doing what he's supposed to do. He went back to Jerusalem. He's reading the scriptures of the Old Testament, knowing that Jesus is their fulfillment. He's with the people, leading them in prayer about this. He decides to replace the man into his office, and then what happens? Pentecost comes. Pentecost comes. And I won't repeat that story for you. The, the antidote to Babel, though, is the end of confusion. God sends in Christianity the end of confusion. What kind of power might we have in an age built of confusion? That's a question I want to ask, but... But what I want to do for this morning is, you know Pentecost, you've heard this story before, right? Peter preaches this amazing sermon, thousands are baptized, and then what? That's what I want to look at. So this is going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and following. Uh, you'll find that on page 911. And we're going to read from chapter 2, verse 46, to chapter 3, 9. 
just going to read that story here uh, with, with just a hat tip to it, uh, which is that uh, after Pentecost, with all of these Christians, the, the kind of driving factor in their life now, every day, is that they are seeking the apostles' teaching. They are looking to hear the scriptures explained or taught in the name of Jesus. And then it's also going to say they are going to live day to day with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now, I don't want you to hear that as something you're supposed to try to do. I want you to hear that as what Christianity promises to the community of Christianity. That with each other, we are free to pursue gladness and simplicity of heart. We don't have to complicate matters. We don't have to listen to stories that aren't from the scripture. We don't have to do what someone says if they cannot prove it by logic or God's word. We can live our lives together, though, with gladness and simplicity of heart, the weak with the strong, or the wise with the fool, buried with each other in our burdens, knowing we all need the same forgiveness at the end of the day. So I want you to hear that in this life they're living after Pentecost, and then we're going to see Peter moving toward his first death and resurrection. Well, before they're going to kill him, he's got to look like Jesus. So, so we're going to see that happen in chapter 3. Here we go. Just going to read for a bit. Chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, let me give you one more note before we go into uh, chapter 3, which is this. You heard that they're in the temple. The Christians are meeting in the temple. The temple is run by the Sadducees and the Romans, influenced by the Pharisees. They're not in a safe place. But they're going every day to a complex that's kind of like a megachurch. Can you imagine a megachurch? We're not a megachurch. Imagine a megachurch, a complex, a small city, and it's got like three sanctuaries, and one's about this size. And that's where the Christians are meeting right now. And the non-Christians, the Jews, are, are all running the rest of the place. And the Christians meeting in this kind of side sanctuary are talking to people who walk by, and people are joining them. That's the political situation. I just got shivered. I love this story. It's called Solomon's Porch, where they are. Solomon's Porch. Here it goes. Chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. 
and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder? He preaches. In this little sanctuary to the side where they've been kind of meeting, there's a big crowd that just came because he healed a guy. And he proclaims the second Pentecost sermon. It's all about judgment against Jerusalem, by the way. It's pretty rough stuff. It's not like the most happy sermon, but it does go to the resurrection of Jesus at the end of it. It's a marvelous sermon. Uh, I, I want to say, though, then, um, uh, there's a lot here. We're going to skip that. The, the end point of this, though, huge crowd in this politically charged situation where this new group who's not supposed to be doing this is saying, this other guy rose from the dead, and now we do a miracle. The end result of this is Peter's going to get arrested. Peter's going to get jailed. Peter's going to get tried. And then Peter's going to get released um, by an angel. Peter and John are taken before the council after this big crowd is like broken up by the powers that be. And uh, the council basically tries to get them to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Uh, they refuse to do so. They're put into prison, and an angel shows up, lets them out. Not the story we heard read a moment ago, but a similar story. We've got, got more of that kind of coming. But notice now, Peter went into the grave, into the prison, and miraculously comes out of the grave, out of the prison. And, and the first thing he does then with John is they go and tell everybody else what just happened. Um, uh, I think we're going to have to skip over just a little bit here, but there's, there's a moment afterwards where they go back to, no, let's do that, uh, Acts 5.20. Go to, go to Acts 5.20. Yeah, uh, they're released, right? They get out. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now here's the verse, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. All right, so he rises from the dead figuratively, and then what happens? Another Pentecost happens. Peter comes to the other apostles, the other Christians, and the Spirit descends again. The place shook. Imagine if they were actually in Solomon's portico when that's happening. The temple's shaking as Jesus is proclaimed, risen from the dead by the chief of his apostles amongst the apostles who, going fast forward for the sake of time, the next thing that happens is all 12 of them are arrested, tried, 
justified, they can't find anything wrong with them, beaten anyway, commanded to never speak in the name of Jesus again and freed. And what did they do? They go right back to Solomon's court. And they start preaching again. That's Acts chapter 5. Uh, 40 to 42 tells you when they get back to Solomon's porch after that whole apostolic, all 12 of them die and rise. They're thrown in prison, they're given stripes, and then they come out, uh, well, well, miraculously-ish again. Although this time, not by an angel, but by the advice of a guy named Gamaliel, uh, a Jewish Pharisee, who, why would he defend Christianity? That's a fun side story. Um, Peter then is there, there's more, after this Second resurrection by all the apostles. There's too much going on, so they established the diaconate. This is Stephen and Philip. Peter's there for their stories. He's there when Stephen is killed. He's there then when, after Stephen is killed and Saul begins his mad rage and persecution throughout Jerusalem, Christians start leaving. So up to this point again, you've got enough Christians in Solomon's porch that you got kind of a side church thing going on. And this gets to the point where Saul of Tarsus says, this is enough, elders. I may be young, but let's kill a guy and put some people in prison. This will disperse it real quick. And it did, in fact, cause the Christians who were meeting at the temple to leave Jerusalem. Almost everyone leaves, Acts tells us, except for the 12th. The 12th stay. Peter's there watching the church shrink under persecution, under his very feet. He's there also then when a sorcerer tries to buy magic from him. That's a fun story in Acts 8.20 if you want to check that out this afternoon. He's there when Paul suddenly comes back from Damascus and he doesn't want to arrest anybody. He wants to preach the gospel. <laughs> He's there for that. He travels to Lydda, to Joppa, to Caesarea so he might learn that the gospel does indeed go to the Gentiles as well. Peter's there for all this through the book of Acts. Um, uh, until and up to, I uh, don't want to lose that there, um, our actual story then. After all that traveling that he does to the Gentiles, uh, to Cornelius's house, where he sees that big blanket and the animals inside so that he can eat with them, right? And go back and tell the, the apostles and the other Christians in Jerusalem for that Acts 15 council, no, really, the Gentiles are Christians too without circumcision. Like, that all takes place. But the big culmination of Peter's story then is what we heard in Acts chapter 12, where um, after we have a little inbreak of Saul's, Paul's story, we come back to Peter He's still in Solomon's portico. The church has been shrinking, but not completely because they're still converting people. The persecutions are still going on. And wouldn't you know, a rival faction gets involved. Right. Chapter 12, verse 1, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Herod is not a Pharisee. Herod is not a Sadducee. They are not friends, but sometimes in politics, your enemy is your friend if you do something against his enemy. Right. So that's what Herod sets up here, and you can track after the story we read, you'll see Herod will die for this. God will punish Herod for this. Uh, but Herod does this. He laid violent hands on some, and he kills James. Oh, my goodness. He kills the elder son of thunder. That's the Lord if you really want it. The second martyr of the church is the elder son of thunder. That's his name. That's what Jesus called him, son of thunder. Right? James, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee. Again, thunder is the nickname for Zebedee. Uh, so uh, he's murdered by Herod, and when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Oh, I made political allies. I'll use my power to do more. He arrests Peter. This was during the days of unleavened bread. That's Passover. Guess what? Peter's going to miss the Passover. 
Um, the story about whether you have to keep the Old Testament law to be a Christian, that's an interesting note to just kind of throw in there. Uh, and when they had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers. So Peter was kept in prison, earnest prayer made for him by the church, sleeping between, this is verse 6, now bound with two chains, sentries before the door, guarding the prison. So he gets thrown in prison again. Last time he was in prison, well, first time he's in prison, God lets him out real fast with an angel. This last time he's in prison, he gets to get beaten. This time he's supposed to die, and it's the night before he dies. He's been in prison a long time. This is not your best life now. This is suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's he's not worried about it, I think. But then the story, again, which I want you to take with you as the knowledge that you have this same God with you. An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. The angel was always there. Or one was. He was never in danger. Never under threat. Not until God wanted him to be crucified in Rome did Peter die. So is true for you. Nothing is outside of your father's control. Nothing is outside of your king's knowledge. Nothing actually works in your non-favor. It's all for your good. you got angels watching over you. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. I love the little Jacob reference. You pick that up. Wrestle with God in the night. Struck on the hip. It's kind of fun. I get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. See the magic of it? I can see the movie right now. Chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. Okay, he does it. This whole time, it's kind of elongated, but he doesn't know what's going on. He thinks he's dreaming. He thinks he's a little bit crazy. But and we go down to verse 10. I love it. They walk to the first gate, the second guard. They come to the iron gate of the city, and it just opens. You, you see like a little flourish of light around it or some tinkling music behind it as it opens up for you. I don't know. But what a thing. And Peter's kind of like, all right, all right, right. I thought I was going to die. Maybe this is, a, this is a vision of what it'll be like after I die or something like that. But he comes to himself when the angel leaves. And he says, surely, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase, surely God's with me. Surely God is with us. He was... Then to go straight to the house where they were gathered to pray for him the night before he was going to die. And there's a little funny bit there about how they don't recognize him right away. Well, what happened at Jesus' resurrection? Remember there was a woman who saw him, didn't know who he was? That sound familiar, right? Like Peter's just fulfilling Christ's life. Christ is living Christ's life in Peter. That's, that's a better way to say it. And now here's the promise. Christ is living Christ's life in you. It's not Peter's story. It's your story. I don't know what your story is. But I know that Peter's story is like it in some way that meant something to you today. And I know next week Paul's story will be the same way. So my prayer for you again, that you see yourself in Christ, in the scriptures, and that we as a people, as we walk together in this present age, we just become a, a calm house of God where whatever else is spinning out there on the many, many plates of the world, uh, we know uh, simplicity. Gentleness of heart. And the knowledge that our God is absolutely our king, is absolutely in charge of all of this. God is with us. In Jesus' name. Amen.